Greetings friends, I'm Will Nicholas from Never Odd or Even and this is the Deep Faith Nine podcast exploring faith and fiction. Deep Space Nine. It's a wonderful reflective moment. Flame the dark. True salt wave. Deep Space Nine. Deep Space Nine. What's going on? Why is this being highlighted? That itself is another interesting question, isn't it? I think I'm starting to get why this science fiction thing is uh, <laughs> uh, is so attractive. You'll, you'll make a sci-fi fan out of me yet. Greetings, friends. This is Will Nicholas, and this is the Deep Faith Nine podcast. And today we're going to be looking at episode 19 of season three, Through the Looking Glass. This is another Mirror Universe episode, and uh, it's very exciting to uh, get into the action-packed and thrilling area of travelling from one dimension to another. Cisco is kidnapped and forced to impersonate his deceased Mirror Universe counterpart. Miles O'Brien appears strangely with weapon in hand and new transporter device to take Cisco across uh, uh, to the Mirror Universe. The mission is to convince Jennifer Cisco, his wife, still alive in the Mirror Universe, to defect to the Terran Rebellion and stop her scientific experiments that will actually end the Rebellion forever. To join me today to talk about this episode, I have uh, Lindsay Cullen, my fellow crew member from uh, Theological Voyages uh, and science officer aboard the uh, Theological Voyage, uh, Lindsay Cullen. G'day, Lindsay. G'day, Will. It's lovely to be back. I always enjoy the uh, Mirror Universe uh, episodes, although I have to say that the, the real uh, news in this episode doesn't actually come from the Mirror Universe, but our own, and it is the big question, is Morn, in fact, the Doctor having multiple hearts? I, I do have that written down. I did go Morn, hearts. I, I thought there was a really nice opening segue there where, where, where Morn is involved in this, uh, this, this nefarious vole-fighting ring and poor uh, Quark is just being brought along um, un, unwittingly <laughs> and un, 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 unsure about what his role is. Quark just thought they were counting them. Of course, of course. Purely pets, naturally. I, I was quite struck, actually, by uh, this particular exchange. I think... I. I perhaps because at the moment I've been doing a fair bit of uh, work and thinking in the area of how does the uh, Uniting Church embrace being an intercultural church. And I was I was really quite impressed by the way Cisco deals with Quark, uh, that, that he, he doesn't lose his cool. He, he doesn't throw him in irons for something that, you know, maybe if it was a human person uh, would have seen them in, in much more trouble. He seems to deal with him on a very level basis. And I think the temptation is to see that as being Cisco saying, oh, well, just it's Quark being Quark. But it's actually Quark being Ferengi. And, and, and I actually think that Cisco does a good job of recognising that the, the cultural mores and approach of the Ferengi is not that of uh, the Federation or humans, and he needs to treat that with respect while still maintaining order in a Federation uh, space station. It's also consistent with going right back to the very beginning of um, Deep Space Nine, um, where Cisco works out very early on that he can't just run a Federation outpost, but that he has to be the leader of a community and a community that he doesn't have control over. When people do things that are outside of Federation law or, or, or um, outside of human decency or common decency, I shouldn't say human decency, um, showing my own uh, racist foibles there, or speciesist foibles, but when people do things um, that that are that might be questionable, um, he he can't just uh, slap them in irons or, or court martial them or, or bring them in. He he has to um, be prepared to to work like a, a frontier community mayor. Um, he he really um, does have to actually take this role of being able to. To, to work with um, people because he needs people like Quark to make his community run. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and the community is very clearly a, an intercultural community. This is not just a, a monocultural sort of station. And in fact, one of the wonderful things about science fiction and, and Deep Space Nine in particular is that you get to explore genuinely different species. You know, I mean, I think we all recognise now that the idea of race uh, in human terms is absolutely a construct and, and very much a, a colonialist construct that we are all humans and many of the things that are, are seen as racial are, are actually uh, uh, just different variations of human, not in any way different uh, different races or different species. Whereas here we actually have genuine different species with totally different perspectives and, and ways of seeing the universe, including how they actually physically see the universe. I really like too that over the last few episodes, I've noted that the directors have put a, a great deal of effort into this cultural diversity on the space station. So I, I made a bit of a note over the last few episodes as I've been re-watching them that I've seen uh, quite a number of alien species. I've seen uh, on board uh, last uh, week's episode, um, uh, we saw a Lethian um, uh, uh, who looks very different. But in, in the, the weeks uh, um, previous to that, on board the station, without having any role in the story at all, we've seen um, a number of packleds wandering around who we, we saw in, um, in Next Generation. Uh, we saw uh, a Norsican. Um, I've seen uh, a number of Bolians. Uh, and so we're actually um, getting to see that Deep Space Nine is becoming... Um, more, far more than just an ex-Cardassian Tarak Nor space station orbiting Bajor, but becoming a, a cosmopolitan hub um, of of interracial economics and and commerce and and diplomacy. So it's really, really fascinating. And I mean, it's one of the things they haven't done well with Star Trek up until this point. The, the universe often does seem to be very human. Um, and I think that Deep Space Nine has really picked up a bit of a hint from Babylon 5, who, who certainly um, did do the, the cosmopolitan interspecies kind of hub far better up until this point um, than Deep Space Nine has. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's fantastic stuff. But um, continuing with the storyline, what's not fantastic stuff, I have to say, is the response of, of the security or crew on uh, Deep Space Nine when... Uh, uh, mirror, mirror O'Brien uh, <laughs> captures the captain in front of them, yeah. and the captain says, "Stand down." But you know, I wouldn't be standing down if someone's holding a phaser on the captain and, and punching, you know, uh, things into the transporter matrix and got this gadget they're going to use. I'd, I'd be doing something. I think not just standing down. I did note several points during that abduction where old uh, Miles O'Brien, or Smiley as we come to know him in the Mirror Universe, um, is not looking at the other um, crew on the bridge, um, is not pointing his phaser at anyone, and at one stage is completely absorbed with um, the, 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 the device that he's created to uh, affect the transporter. I wondered why it was that uh, our Captain Cisco didn't punch him and knock him out while before he was actually taken elsewhere. Perhaps he was curious about what was going on and wanted to go through the looking glass to see maybe what, what was happening. Um, but certainly they could have questioned Smiley on his own side without actually going through what was a fairly, fairly um, difficult abduction. Um, yeah, well, exactly. And I mean, I guess you you might argue that he, he wanted to deal with um, Smiley or, or O'Brien as other people would have seen him, uh, you know, in private rather than uh, than um, dealing with him physically in front of the others. But, you know, you never know what would have been at the other end of that transport. He could have been transporting straight into a room with, you know, four more armed people. Uh, all ready to march him off. So, yes, it really was quite a dangerous uh, way to handle the thing. But our Smiley's never been a great tactician. I mean, we, we, I remember we, we talked about him back, uh, you were my guest for the episode Crossover, and we, we, we did talk about how um, he, he was actually a, a defeated Terran. Um, so he's, he's kind of come a bit of a way since then. He's now showing a bit more uh, initiative um, and, and certainly engaging in... in in strategic action for the Terrans on the other side of the looking glass. Um, but, um, but yes, a, a poorly thought through 
poorly constructed abduction plan met with a very lackluster and um, and 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 lazy defense of the commander of the space station. So kind of uh, um, yeah, failures on both sides there, resulting in um, in in a successful abduction. Well, and without giving anything too much away, I'd have to say that. Um as far as Mirror Universe episodes go, this is not one of my favourites. I, I find the whole thing is a, a, a little much, a little bland and a little much of a, a, a failure as far as these Mirror Universe episodes go. It's, it's not one of the ones that I get really excited about seeing. I think they're still playing with the concept. They're still trying to work out how to deal with it. And, and, and to be honest, um, the whole area of parallel universes is a really difficult thing to write about. I mean, I noted that one of the, the, the in my reading for this, one of the gaffes was questions about whether or not Jadzia um, in a parallel universe with a defeated Trill homeworld would have been a joined individual. And so throughout the episode, um, uh, she's referred to as Dax by everyone on both sides. So, so clearly um, she is joined uh, in this episode uh, on both sides of the universe. And so there are unanswered questions. The other big unanswered question I always have uh, when it comes to these um, these parallel universes, are, uh, especially the way Star Trek does them, is with all of the different possibilities and probabilities, all the changes to the universe, how on earth did any of our main characters not only end up being born, but actually end up together um, in the same sector of space? Um, and what really excited me was that they actually did show that there were changes in location because I've got written down in my notes here, Tuvok, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. We have all suffered losses at the hands of the Alliance. Nonetheless, logic dictates caution in the face of a superior enemy. How exciting to see Tim Russ's Tuvok in this episode. <laughs> yes, I, I, I suspect that that was, um, you know, uh, one of those things that came down from Rick Berman, the uh, head honcho at paramount over all things star trek at the time and and was aimed at generating a bit more uh enthusiasm and popularity for voyager you know for uh getting deep space nine fans to see this character and maybe uh, become interested or perhaps the other way around voyager fans uh to watch deep space nine it's a shame that tuvok really doesn't have much of a role you know i mean he he says logic would dictate a couple of times, and that's about it, really, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's really a glimpse. Um, I I, uh, I did wonder whether there was some form of uh, prisoner exchange taking place. With uh, a couple of weeks ago, we saw Aaron Eisenberg appearing uh, across in Voyager, playing the character of Carr, um, uh, not the character of Nog. Um, so I I, I did. Um, I did, I did wonder whether or not there was a little bit of, oh, okay, well, we need one of yours in ours, we need one of ours in yours to actually try and um, get some fan crossover. Look, we shouldn't be too critical of them doing that, given that uh, we're doing exactly the same thing right now and you're appearing <laughs> on the Deep Faith Nine podcast um, all the way across from the uh, the Voyager podcast. Um, so, uh, so certainly it's a good technique to actually bring people from one to the other to try and um, get them interested in, in, in each other's series. Well, that is true, although my, my loyalty to Deep Faith Nine uh, uh, predates uh, Voyager uh, and that podcast, of course. Um, just coming back to the whole idea of parallel universes, uh, and I think you've raised some really interesting questions about, you know, if there are all these um, myriad, in fact, infinite number of parallel universes out there, why this particular one, which is so conveniently like and yet unlike ours in ways that make for a good dramatic uh, tension and, and uh, stuff like that. One of the things that struck me was uh, uh, Cisco's immediate response to Smiley's uh, request for aid and and he is of course sympathetic to the Terrans he he would like to see them uh, you know be um, successful in the rebellion uh, and yet uh, his his immediate response is I don't belong here and I'm not about to interfere with events going on in this universe and it it brings back a, a trope which I find quite interesting about you're not allowed to play with the timeline when it's timeline travel stories or you're not allowed to play with the events in a parallel universe and and from an ethical perspective at least I wonder what possible backing we could have for that because surely the the correct ethical response is to um, 
act for the good in whatever place you find yourself, whether it's the place where you uh, originally were or whether through some science fiction means you find yourself uh, back or forward in time or in a parallel universe. I, I would think that that doesn't change our uh, ethical obligations in terms of acting for the good, however we see the good to be. And I just wonder about this this whole idea of, oh, we mustn't mess with the timeline. I um at this point I want to give a shout out to um a, a new listener um uh Duncan Carter who uh, I've met recently here in Geelong um who, who's a, a partner in the uh, Geelong uh, game store uh, here in Geelong uh, where I've been playing my tabletop role playing games um uh, on a regular basis and uh, Duncan um picked up on this in the episode from a couple of weeks ago where Miles O'Brien was shifting through time and moving from one one time period to another and we end up with uh, uh, several instances in that episode where there's two miles and at the end the wrong miles goes back and replaces the the, the actual one so we end up with a miles o'brien who's actually five hours older than the universe he lives in um and um five hours younger than the universe he lives in um and so one of the things on the issue of influence and control that duncan asks about is is to say that it's about um that that there are dimensions of space we actually um, have control over. So in the in the three dimensions of space we have, we can we can pick up objects and we can move them from one space to another. Uh, and in some ways, even in the fourth dimension of space, we can predict that if I kick the ball from this point, it will go through the goals over there in that point. And so there are there are dimensions of space under which we naturally have control or influence over. Um, the question then occurs when we suddenly find ourselves, um, and only so far in a fantasy realm, having control over over dimensions of space that we we don't normally have influence or control over. So, so if we could travel backwards through time, we could influence time, have control over future or past events, um, and and so the ethics of actually having control over something we wouldn't naturally or normally have control over. And I think that's the same with parallel universes that 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 so what cisco has done here is is in some ways intruded or or become offside to use a football expression um and 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 so the question is can can we really be able to kick goals when we're offside are we are we allowed to actually participate i can't believe i'm using a football reference in the, in my nerdy podcast but but yeah it it really occurred to me that uh, and so Duncan talks about it um, when he was writing in, in his little um, um, reflection that he sent to me, talks about how when we're doing this, we're almost casting a shadow. It's not really, we're not really there. It's actually our shadow that's fallen onto this other dimension. Um, and I, I found that to be a really helpful construct to be thinking about um, this ethics. Because you're right, why shouldn't we just do whatever we want wherever we are? Um, uh what does it mean for us to exercise control and influence in places where we're not normally um, uh, um, able to do so? And and I think for me, part of it is about the sense that if if there is a dimension over which we should not have control, we won't have control. Yep. Um, but if we're given control, we have to act ethically with that. You know, I mean, to come back to the the whole Spider-Man thing, uh, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. We've been given the power to exercise control in a way which is not the normal. We still have to exercise that power, but exercise it responsibly. Are you saying that because we can, we should? Uh, I am. I am, in fact, yes. And, and I think... It's interesting for me. One of the one of the uh, paradigms that I use for decision making uh, comes from the the New Testament, and and particularly from the story. I don't know if you remember the story of uh, Paul and and um, uh, Silas heading off on on the second uh, missionary trip, or or is it Paul and Barnabas still in the second one? Anyway, that. They, they decide to go back to the places where they've already planted churches to see how they're, they're getting on. And, and they head off and they do that. And you might remember that along the way, um, Paul finds himself unable to go the path that he wanted to. 
and finds himself instead in this um, port town of Troas. And that's where he has this vision of people uh, from uh, the Greek um, uh, area. He's on Asia Minor at the moment, what we currently call Turkey. Uh, and he has this vision saying, come over to us. And so he heads in a totally different direction uh, over to what we would now call Greece, Macedonia. Um, and and for me, that's a wonderful paradigm of how we should act as Christians ethically, is we use our brain, we make a plan, and we go forward on the basis that if God has something else, God can intervene. And so I guess for me, it's much the same. If, if I can't get into a certain time period or parallel universe, well, I can't get into it. But if I get into it, then I've been given that gift and now I have to act on that gift. So, you know, I, I, I figure if God lets me get into a parallel universe, I'm going to continue to act according to my Christian uh, uh, calling and morality in that new, um, new parallel universe. So uh, does that mean that if you, um, and this is some conjecture here, you, if you, <laughs> if you uh, later on this afternoon found you were suddenly surrounded by swirly lights and you were pulled through time and you suddenly appeared in the artist studio of a, of a young and up-and-coming artist in Austria back in the 1920s, 1930s, um, and there was a pistol on the table, you would have no qualms about picking up that pistol and putting two, two shots into the back of the young Hitler's head? <laughs> great, great example, Will. And I guess my answer would be, no, I wouldn't do that. But if I knew it was Hitler, I would do my utmost to engage with this person and by moral means, or what I would consider to be moral means, to have an impact on his life, even if I thought that was going to change the course of history. So no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't shoot him, but if I could, you know, uh, change his mind and help direct him onto a different path, I would happily do that, even if it changed history. Yeah. So, and I guess that also reflects to us that, and that's why probability theory becomes and quantum mechanics becomes so, so hard to get our heads around is that even with that slipping through time and appearing in that artist studio, um, you actually have a, a, an infinite range of, of actions that you could actually take in that space. Um, you could try and convince him, you could shoot him, you could, you know, you could do all kinds of different things and and every single one of those things could create an entirely new universe um and um and and so when you returned back after that event you might discover that you made it worse um i, I am looking forward to the episode of voyager i think it comes up in season four uh where they they do this very thing where uh uh, uh they, uh, they have the ability to alter time and 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 so they're they're constantly going through looking for the perfect time solution and it's um and and all around them the universe is constantly shifting and changing um so that's uh it's a fascinating um idea um that we could actually um affect our universe um and influence and control although i want to bring it back away from fantasy and actually also push it a little bit further into i guess real um, kinds of situations over the last few decades superpowers in our uh, on our own world um, uh, America and Russia and China um, have really kept a non-interventionist um, policy um, or at least tried to disguise their interventions as much as possible and for me that actually raises the issue of sovereignty um, at, at what point does our ability to actually change or influence or control an environment actually impact on the sovereignty of other people? When, at what point do we use our influence and control to remove other people's influence and control because of the power that we've been given? And, and, and I'm, I'm interested in exploring that concept. Mm, mm. Yeah, look, that, that's fascinating. And, and my mind's whirling around as you say that. <sighs> Gosh, I don't want to be reductionist, but but in the end, it comes down to individuals and the the sense of um, am I taking away another's choice? So I think for me, that's part of the reason why I don't just grab the pistol and shoot Hitler, but want to engage in different ways because um, any any kind of violence like that is is taking away another person's. Uh, ability to control and of course there are uh, limits and clashes in that and we do 
um, we do limit people's uh, autonomy in the name of uh, safety, either their own or safety of other people if we think someone's going to harm someone else. So, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, that, that area of sovereignty, I, I know on the one hand, it's something that, and especially in the United Church, we have struggled with, particularly with regard to First Peoples sovereignties and, and our understanding that uh, First Peoples here in Australia never gave up their sovereignty, never ceded that sovereignty uh, to the colonialists who came. But there's also a part of me that wants to say that the whole idea of sovereignty is very much tied to a particular, I don't know if I'd say Western, but a particular um, human understanding of nation states, isn't it? Um, and and it's only when you have different groups of people, nation states in some sense, that you can talk about their sovereignty or, you know, a superpower interfering with their sovereignty. And I, I'm not sure I necessarily want to buy into the idea that that kind of nation state grouping is fundamentally moral and, um, you know, foundational to, to human interactions. I think it's particularly relevant. I mean, at the moment we're we're recording this this week um, in um, the National Week of Reconciliation here in Australia. So that that means when this goes to air, of course, it'll be a few weeks after that. But I I, I did find it fascinating. I mean, I um I saw yesterday the video clip of um, uh, Ziggy Ramon um, standing on top of the Sydney Opera House singing his latest version of From Little Things Big Things Grow. Um, really worthwhile checking out. I might actually put a link to it into the show notes. But what struck me was that in this version of this song, which has meant so much um, to to the issue of reconciliation over the years since um, um, it was first recorded by Paul Kelly and uh, Kev Carmody, um, that that um, in this particular one he picks up on the the, the doctrine of discovery. Uh, and the Doctrine of Discovery, which was actually put out in uh, the 1400s, 1493, I think, um, really um, said that we have the right um, to declare any um, land we or place we discover that isn't inhabited by, by, by Christians um, to, be, to be empty and up for grabs. Um, and, and so one of the things I really... That, that causes me hesitancy when I hear this idea of, oh, we have the right where we are to make use of the power we have to act for good, is that that, that at least in part the document of discovery um, exists or the doctrine of discovery existed for that reason. Um, and so, so in some ways the Federation, Star Trek, um, Cisco is implementing still the doctrine of discovery when he travels into the mirror universe by actually saying, I have the right to um, use my power to bring about an ethic in this space um, because I believe my ethic is, is superior in some way. Yeah, maybe. Although I think I would argue that, that in, in this particular case, Cisco doesn't come into the mirror universe with a, a superabundance of power. The power we're talking about there is simply his his personal power to make choices, to act, and to uh, have other people respond to those actions. It's not the same as the as the colonial powers arriving with overwhelming force, which enabled them to enact their will over that of others. Um, Cisco in Mirror Universe very much has to negotiate and talk and persuade uh, in into things happening. And, and just uh, moving on uh, in that uh, track about um, parallel universes and the mirror universe in particular, uh, last time we talked a fair bit about, you know, uh, are people the same or different nature and nurture and that sort of stuff. But the thing that struck me this time around um, was actually the relationship between people in different parallel universes. So, of course, the whole, the whole point of the uh, story gets going because Cisco, having first said, I'm not going to help you because I don't want to do stuff and, and muck up your universe, uh, and, and we've mentioned the, the morality or otherwise of that, he then goes against that principle because it's um, the, the parallel version of his dead wife, Jennifer, 
uh, who who is the focus of this particular plan. And uh, in particular, Smiley says, you know, well, if you don't if you don't turn her onto our side, we'll have to kill her. Um, and and so I found that fascinating because I think in in our own life. Um, one of the things we struggle with is the the nature of our ethical obligations to different people. And, you know, as a, a rich person living in a Western country, um, that's a, a constant thing I have to struggle with, that I could give away all of my wealth and, and that would make a, a huge difference to people living in poverty in other parts of the world. Um, and yet I also have a moral obligation to my family, to my wife, to my daughter, uh, to my friends, to my church. Um, and how do I balance those? And I think for me, a, a helpful sort of idea is that of um, sort of concentric circles of moral obligation. And, and there are some people to whom I owe a greater moral obligation than others. It doesn't take away my moral obligation to help those, if I can, who are in poverty in Australia or who are in poverty uh, in Africa or whatever, but I have a greater moral obligation uh, to some people and some situations. And it's fascinating then to think that Cisco feels somehow that he has a greater obligation to mirror Jennifer um, than to his his principle of I shouldn't interfere in this particular place. And uh, I mean, we think about that in emotional terms. He just can't cope with the idea of her dying again. But it's a fascinating moral uh, quandary, I think. The things we do for love, um, <laughs> that love is so powerful that it transcends one dimension to another, That that even though this isn't the person that he... He has journeyed with. Um, it's not the person that he has um, um, fathered Jake with. Um, it's not the person that he met on the beach um, and 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 burnt his feet and fell in love with, as we saw in the very first episode. Um, and yet, all of those memories constructed within him actually cause him to feel a sense of loyalty and desire, um, a sense of connection, um, because she represents all of those things to him um and and she clearly isn't and is that person at the same time i i, I felt i'd gotten pulled into a real uh schrodinger's jennifer kind of situation um <laughs> where uh the quantum mechanics here actually say well she is his wife and she isn't his wife at the same time and I really felt that the writers played that tension very well there were several times where there was no dialogue um, but but just glances um, and expressions exchanged between the two of them as they both tried to work out, uh, and even in that final conversation between Cisco and Jennifer at the end of the episode, they're trying to work out who are who you are who are you to me, um, because you're obviously someone and yet um, you're you're no one at the same time. I I I, I found that absolutely fascinating. Yeah, I, I, I did too. I think it's a really interesting sort of uh, idea to play with. And I guess um, coming back to my previous comment, part of my dissatisfaction with this particular episode is that I, I didn't think they played that quite as well as they might. And, and I think in the end, the, the last third, um, uh, Mirror Jennifer just capitulated too easily and too quickly. Like yep. there, there wasn't the sense that she as Smiley says, genuinely was someone different. Uh, you know, this is someone who'd been brought up differently in a different context, had a different uh, relational, um, uh, you know, history with uh, Mira Cisco. Um, and, 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 and it was just too easy and, and too quick that she sort of says, oh, yes, OK, I'll come with you and blah, blah, blah. Now, if Captain Rainway was here right now, she would say to us, <laughs> once again, they've had to tie it up all neatly at the end of their 45-minute episode. Um, which does bring me to an interesting piece of trivia that I discovered while preparing for this episode today. As I was looking through my, my source book, I discovered that um, the episode before this, which is called Distant Voices, is listed as Star Trek episode number 464. And that's going from the very beginning. Um, so 464. But then I actually turned to the next page of my episode where it says 465 and it lists episode called Improbable Cause, which is actually next week's episode, 
And then the week after that is actually through the looking glass, number 466. Now, that, that made me think, oh, wow, that's weird. Like, what's going on here? So I did some digging and research and discovered that, that the, um, the writers had actually planned for it to be in that order. So this is the order in which they're written. But the order of release puts this one before the episodes called Improbable Cause and um, uh, the one after that, which is called The Die is Cast. Now, the reason for that is they got partway through shooting the episode Improbable Cause and they realised they were not going to be able to finish the episode in 45 minutes. And so they actually had to go on and film the next one because that's what they'd scheduled and all of the props and sets were set up for it and then come back and actually finish the story off with the Dyer's cast. So that's the way they were filmed. But that would make absolutely no sense to us if they released them in that order. So they brought this episode forward. So um, I found it really fascinating that um, they can't always finish the episode in 45 minutes <laughs> and they actually had to make this decision to actually put these, these three episodes in a different sequence to their, to their, um, their production. Yep. While we're talking trivia, I was reading something about this episode which uh, uh, said that Avery Brooks, uh, the actor who plays uh, Ben Sisko, uh, was quite pleased about this episode because uh, Sisko finally gets some uh, yeah. in, in, in fact, twice. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and, 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 and talking about parallel universes, that then uh, made me think, isn't that interesting that, you know, in a sense, the, the actor and the character that they portray are, are parallel universes. They are not the same person. And yet there is this affinity such that uh, the actor Avery Brooks can feel good or bad about what's happening to a character that he portrays, uh, even though it's not actually having any effect on himself personally. See, I think they totally missed the ethics of this in this one because um, um, because they actually... Um, I, I don't know that I could feel as comfortable about that. Like, so, so you know, is, he's, he's married to uh, Looking Glass or Mirror Mirror Jennifer, so he's still married in one sense. Um, he's friends with and the boss of... of, of of Kira and Dax. Um, and so we've actually got this, this really, really bizarre, well, it's not even a love triangle, is it? It's, a, it's, it's more of a rhombus, um, that, 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 that actually makes, makes absolutely no emotional sense to this at all. So I can, I can understand, I, I can understand why, um, from a character perspective, uh, from an actor perspective, it, it, it actually is, is, quite a good 90s run but but from a character perspective it certainly compromises everything i know about benjamin cisco and and to me it wasn't enough to say oh he had to keep his cover um you know that that he i well i've got a i've got a i i didn't see how this was different to those episodes where uh we had the the alien who was played by um by Jeffrey Coombs who wanted a holographic representation of Major Kira so that he could play with her on that like I, I you know that was clearly ethically wrong there were lots of red flags in that we're going this is not consent this is not I guess the difference here is is that there was consent with everybody who was involved so so nobody was being abused or taken advantage of although some people didn't have the whole story or the full truth. So I guess that, that could have resulted in senses of betrayal. Yeah, seeing we've gone down this uh, uh, track, um, I wasn't quite sure we, that we'd go here or not, but I, I think it's actually quite interesting. And, and um, this next thing that I'm going to talk about actually came out of me doing a bit of research on another gaffe in this particular episode, because um, uh, one of the one of the things that you'll notice happens in this episode is that a whole bunch of alliance ships decloak uh, yes. around around Cisco and O'Brien's ship. But of course, uh, if we project ourselves further into the future um, and and we go on to a season seven uh, episode called uh, The Emperor's New Cloak. The whole plot line for that particular episode is that Quark uh, and Rom, I think, are trying to steal a cloaking device in order to deliver it to the Mirror Universe because the Alliance doesn't have cloaking technology yes. and needs it. Yep. Um, 
So, so that was the gaff. But as I was researching that gaff and watching a, a bit of uh, the Emperor's New Cloak episode, at the end of the episode, uh, I don't know if you remember it, um, uh, the m- mirror version of Lita the Darbo girl comes in, uh, yep. played by Chase Masterton. Um, and, uh, and, and Lita, you'll remember, uh, in Prime Universe, uh, later becomes married to Rom. But in yes. the Mirror Universe, this Lita comes in and is, is going to question uh, Mirror Esri Dax. And, uh, and, and there's this sort of sexual tension between them. And it suddenly struck me that one of the things that I dislike about the uh, Star Trek portrayal of the Mirror Universe, at least in Deep Space Nine, and I'm going to now have to go back to uh, some of my discovery and think about this as well, is that the Prime Universe is seen almost entirely as this sort of uh, heteronormative, cisgendered, we're all straight sort of place. And part of the way that you know that you're in the mirror universe is that suddenly you have bisexual or uh, gay and lesbian characters. And that's played up as, uh, you know, something that happens in the mirror universe. And I think that's really unfortunate, given that the the whole premise of the mirror universe is that in some way it's more evil and it, it's our characters in in less less good uh, representations of themselves. So I, I think it's a shame that they've used sexuality in that way uh, in the mirror universe. And and you see it in this episode with, you know, Kira, uh, or it's the intendant, I should say, you know, surrounded by both males and females that she's obviously uh, having pleasure with. And, and that's seen as, uh, you know, a sign that she's the evil version I think, um, I mean, that has quite a bit of, uh, to, of understanding of that 80s and 90s view of, of deviance um, and that in a lot of ways what the, what the church and, the, and uh, the, the, I guess the, the Christian society that was um, uh, the, the space in which these, these episodes were created did, was linked deviance and uh, evil together. Um, and, um, and I don't know that, well, I'm, I'm certain that we're not actually doing that in the same way anymore, and even using the word deviance to describe uh, LGBTQIA plus communities as deviant um, sounds like we're actually saying something negative about them. But but movies like Divergent um, that that came out uh, a couple of years ago um, um, and, and and other movies like that have really explored this idea to say. Do we really think that that difference, social difference, is automatically connected to to to, to evil intent? Um, and I think in the '90s, when this was filmed, that was not a question that society was actually capable of of asking. Uh, and in fact, as a as a um, a, a, a young adult uh, in the in the '90s and a teenager in the '80s. Um, I really loved my role-playing games because it allowed me to create alternate universes in which I could explore my own sense of, of deviance to the social norms. Not that I wanted to engage in, in, in evil activities um, uh, or, or, or in, you know, not from a Jungian social um, shadow self kind of perspective, but, but more an idea of saying, well, are the things that make me unique or different to everyone else or, or the stated nature of everyone else really the things that, um, that, that, are, that, are, that are, are they actually evil? Or should they actually be condemned? I can remember very clearly as a, as, as a, as a nerd um, in those age times um, thinking to myself, um, I'd rather read books than play football. I'd rather play tabletop games um, than go on a date. Um, you know, and 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 so I, I actually felt I needed to closet those those expressions of masculinity because they didn't fit with the heteronormative um, hegemonic version of masculinity that was considered um, and taught to me by by so many men around me at the time as the only way to be a man. Um, I I love living in this age now where we can actually talk about um, masculinity and femininity and, and a whole range of different understandings of gender uh, in a way that actually allow us to, to, to say that, that it's okay to um, have a, a, a different understanding of who I am and how my relationships work. 
Yeah, yeah, ab- absolutely. And and I think, you know, you're, you're quite right that it's a product of its time. But I think what I'm saying is that looking back now, you think, oh, gosh, I wish they hadn't have done that. You know, I, yep. I, I, I wish it was different for my sake in taking pleasure in, in this, uh, you know, sort of uh, uh, sci-fi property that I enjoy, enjoy so much about it. It's a shame yep. when, when there are the things that you think, oh, well, I, I don't really like that. Well, it allows us to have this conversation, uh, and I guess that's part of the reason why we're taking this period piece um, out of out of its context and actually saying, "Hey, what does this look like?" Uh, another, since we're speaking about gaffes, another gaff that I found, and and look, th- there is significant danger about writing science fiction in the areas of time and probability because we just don't know so much about what we're trying to to write our fiction about. Um, uh, Dr. Bashir is genetically enhanced. Yes, yes. Which means that what we should be seeing here is actually somebody who um, really doesn't have the capacity to 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 function effectively. Um, and and I, I, I felt that they missed an opportunity. Well, they didn't even know they needed that opportunity at this point in time because I don't know that at this stage in the writing they had fully fleshed out what that was going to mean. They were just foreshadowing that something was happening. But... I mean, I guess I needed more from this portrayal of Doctor Who, not Doctor Who, Doctor Bashir, um, than messy hair and um, an unshaven face. Like- we have been meaning to talk to you about that. Mr. Bashir is not convinced that you can persuade your former mate to join our cause. I can be very persuasive. Look, I don't even know why we're bothering to discuss this. The Kardashians destroyed your ship way before it got even close to Terra. No. He, he just seemed too sharp, too clever, too coordinated um, to, to have been an ungenetically enhanced version of himself. Um, and I, I can't possibly see how he would have been genetically enhanced given the nature of what we know about this universe. Well, yes, uh, although I, I, I picked up the same point, but I went the other way, uh, which was that I assumed that the Mirror Universe Bashir would be genetically enhanced just because, you know, they like to keep so much of, of their character's central sort of, um, uh, you know, characteristics. And, and so then my question was, if he's genetically enhanced, why isn't he far and away the leader of the rebellion yes. how does he possibly let cisco hit him in the in the face why isn't he khan uh, yes. you know taking hold of the human rebellion you know by his enhanced capabilities absolutely yep so it fails on both of those points um and uh, and and i i guess i mean uh, that's the 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 problem the risk of writing into time travel and i i i I know that uh one of the things i love to do in my role-playing games when i'm running tables is 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 alternate realities and time travel are 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 a fascinating temptation to get involved in but extraordinarily hard to pull off uh, especially when it comes to foreshadowing um because you almost have to make your prophecies fulfill themselves um and in a sense you end up railroading the freedom of your characters um, uh, away from them being able to make decisions. Uh, it works extraordinarily well when you've got a group of characters who actually make the decision to say, I'm going to look for the, for the prophecies and actually attempt to fulfil them. Um, it doesn't work if you've got player characters who say, I want to use my agency and change the way that time works or happens um, because then you end up with... I mean, what happens if we change time uh i mean there is no way to avoid the grandfather paradox um we will always end up um preventing ourselves from going back and doing the thing that we did if we change time um to it to any great degree i wanted to um uh, uh spend a bit of time thinking about something which is not at all about the parallel universe per se or uh, any of that sort of science fiction stuff but it's actually about Mira Jennifer's motivations for why she is working for the Alliance. Um, and, and the way it's presented is that she believes that by aiding the Alliance to find the rebels um, and put down the rebellion, that will mean an end to the violence that is affecting Terran people. Now, she, she may be entirely wrong. Uh, wrong about that but it's 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 such an inter- interesting motivation and i was 
thinking about it in the light of some of the discussions that we've had on the Voyager podcast about weapons of mass destruction and is there ever a, an ethical case why you might use a weapon of mass destruction in order to bring about the, the end of a war and to try and minimise uh, casualties in, in the big picture. Um, and, and there's something about this choice which is a little different for me and it, it has that element that, that it's betrayal. Now, if I drop the atomic bomb so that my side wins the war and I believe that that brings an earlier end to the war and to death and destruction, somehow for me that, that feels different to the idea that I actually uh, betray my side and work with the enemy so that they will win the war to bring an end to death and destruction. And I wondered whether whether that had a similar sort of uh, uh, resonance with you. Yeah, I, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about the same kind of thing. Uh, and, and there were two um, sci-fi schools of thought that really appeared to me. Um, or actually three, um, two of them are very similar. Um, one from Star Wars. So I really found that the role of Jennifer in this was very similar to the role of Galen Erso in Rogue One. Um, who is the research scientist who did all of the work on creating the Death Star. And the purpose of the Death Star, if you listen to the Emperor um, and to, to his, his, uh, his moffs and generals, is to actually um, bring peace to the galaxy. Um, that that um, if they can end the rebellion and stop the fighting, if people would just not resist their tyranny, then there would be peace and no one would have to be killed anymore. Um, and there's this idea of... Of, of, of peace does come through the non-resistance of tyranny. Um, but, but is it really, like, is it really an end to peace, sorry, an end to war, or is it just an end to violence? Um, and is there another kind of violence in tyranny that is just oppression? It just, just holds people in place. Um, the other two places I found this was that in, in Voyager, much later on, the character of Seven of Nine begins to put together the pieces of, of the conspiracy of, of what's happening and comes up with an entire conspiracy theory around why Voyager was sent into the Delta Quadrant in the first place by the Federation. And, and all of her facts are right, but the way she's put them together are wrong. Um, and there's a similar episode um, with in Deep Space Nine later on where Dr. Bashir is working with the other enhanced people and they decide that the best way to stop casualties in the war with the Dominion is to surrender to the Dominion um, as soon as possible because they'll only prolong um, a, a, a war which will actually cost lots and lots of lives, millions and millions of lives. If they surrender now, then the losses will be a lot less and the end end will be the same. So this idea about inevitability, the inevitability of tyranny, is the one that's actually causing Jennifer to actually help the the alliance in this case because because what she's what she's suggesting is 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 that um, there is no way to overthrow um, the tyranny of the alliance in the same way that Galen Erso is saying the empire is inevitable. Um, so bringing about the end to the to the conflict um, by by any means um, sooner will actually save lives. Uh, we used the same um, um, understanding um, for the bombing of Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Um, that that the destruction of those two, two civilian populations saved um, uh, countless lives in the Second World War um, by ending the war in one swift stroke. Well, we do, but I think the, the, the interesting difference for me is at the personal level, if, if I am the scientist working on our bomb in order to bring about this terrible destruction, but that hopefully will bring an end to the war, that's somehow for me a different thing than if I actually betray my side in order to enable the other side to have the bomb and uh, and in the war or whatever. Isn't it is. that exactly what Oppenheimer did? Well, I, I guess I guess if if you argue that he should have been a loyal German citizen, then yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so one of the things that's interesting in this perspective is that history is written by the victor. Mm. So we we see the dropping of the bomb um, as as a swift stroke to end a war, which would have been would have cost countless of lives, but. Are we blind to our own tyranny? 
um, have has has the 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 winning of the Allies in the Second World War only sparked a different kind of oppression and tyranny? Has it has it actually enhanced the kind of colonialism that actually um, we come back to the doc- doctrine of discovery? Has it has it actually um, do we do we rewrite history in a way that we can be happy with our own tyrannical approaches to oppression? What have the Americans ever done for us? Well, <laughs> the reality is, you know, if if I were to ask uh, India or, or Pakistan or, or Palestinians um, or, or any of the nations of Africa or, or first peoples um, of the world, um, I might get a very different understanding of the tyranny of, of white privilege that has actually been sustained by, by the dropping of the bombs on Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Oh, absolutely. And I'm reminded, like, this is well outside our territory, but I don't know if you've uh, watched the uh, Apple original series, uh, Ted Lasso, at all. Um, and the, there's this beautiful, it's it's quite a lovely and very positive and uplifting series. But uh, he's this coach who's always full of positivity. And uh, one of the things he does in one episode is that he gets this collection of little plastic uh, soldiers from from his son who who's in America and he's in in the UK, um, and and so he gives these out to people as a little gift of a, a soldier that will uh, you know look after them and be the first line of defence when they're feeling scared or worried or whatever. And it's quite a touching little gift. But he gives one to this um, uh, this African player of the team um, uh, who later in the episode comes back to him and says. Thanks for the thought, but I don't actually have quite the same relationship to American soldiers that you do, yeah, you and do. he gives it yeah. back. <laughs> yep. And we, we do. We write things from our own perspective. We, we actually um, we, we do have a tendency to want to make ourselves to be the good guys. Um, uh, speaking of good guys, um, Miles O'Brien is a good man in any universe. I mean, isn't this great? I mean, everybody else seems to be flipping and changing, and 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 and. But but it doesn't matter which universe Miles O'Brien is in. He's always going to be dependable, loyal, friendly, um, supportive. You know, he, he's he's a good man in any universe. Well, and I think that this, and and we did talk about this a bit, but I think that this is actually part of the whole conceit of this mirror universe is that while they want to say that the characters are all different they also want to hold the core of the characters uh, as being somehow the same so in the case of major kira it's that that strength of determination that leadership ability um and that ability that desire to want to hold on to terek noah um, uh, or, or Deep Space Nine um, as as uh, something for her people, um, you know. And I, ca- I guess in the case of Miles O'Brien, the central uh, sort of flavor of that character is in fact his loyalty and dependability and and goodness. And and so if they want to hang on to that, he has to be a good person in in a universe. There were a couple of off-screen things that I would have liked to have seen in this episode. Um, one of the things that um, that 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 the writers um, and directors were concerned about was the high body count. So so far in the mirror universe, we seem to be killing off cast cast members members left, right, and centre. Um, we lost Rom in this episode, uh, and we get this very sinister throwback to say that Garrick tortured information out of Rom. Um, that would have been a very interesting scene to see. Um, Rom Rom comes across uh, quite uh, deviously instrumental in this episode as the the one who goes between um, and uh, and sets it all up. Um, I also love to see um, uh, dueling pistols from <laughs> uh, from our uh, our commander Cisco. I, I thought Ben Cisco with uh, with two pistols was actually pretty exciting. It made me think of Nathan Fillion in Firefly. Very good, very good. I want to come back to your comment about tyranny too, because I, I did make a note of that. That you know, central to the whole uh, plot line in the Terran universe is uh, during this period of the Terran um, 
uh, universe, the the fight for the Terrans to gain their independence, and, and and I mean it's such an interesting theme, human freedom, because it it's in fact a motivating theme in our own scriptures as well, isn't it? You know, the whole story of Israel is the story of a people shaped by their journey to freedom uh, from the oppression in Egypt, the Exodus, um, and so that that sense that the the humans want to be free um, is is such a strong motivator that we understand and that it has great mythic resonance. The the fascinating thing then, if we look at the whole of the um, you know mirror universe uh, sort of history, is that because of the darkness of the mirror universe, that desire to be free actually manifests in a, a Terran empire, and they go from being the oppressed uh, to being the oppressors of others, and and I think that's that's a, a real temptation for humans that that when when we finally win the battle uh, to break away from oppression. Uh, the temptation is there that we then become the oppressors of others, which is a, a real shame in a sense that, that we've turned everything upside down. I know it's a discovery um, plot, but um, I, I, I found it interesting um, that it's very difficult for us as human beings to comprehend a race that's actually happy to be enslaved. Um, and so the character of Saru in this one, uh, whose entire uh, Kelpian nation is actually um, uh, you know, part of a, a great balance which requires them to remain enslaved. Um, um, but even when we establish this really interesting otherworldly kind of understanding that we're happy to be enslaved under tyranny we still write a plot line which sets them free um we still actually have to work out how to get them out of out of that so we we become as human beings intensely unhappy leaving anyone with a lack of agency or under tyranny we 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 uh, it's 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 a fascinating thing that surely out there in the universe it must be possible that there would be a race of beings that are actually not only happy to be enslaved, but content actually going, okay, well, look, this, this, this solves a whole bunch of our problems for us. But as a human being, even saying that now, I'm kind of going, no, no, they mustn't be really happy. They're, they must, they must be just convinced or manipulated into thinking that that's the case. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it raises really interesting questions because I think, you know, some, some of the way, some of the vocabulary is weighted, isn't it? That, yep. that there's a difference between being in service to someone and saying, um, you know, I am happiest and, and I feel fully free in being in service to someone and not being in control, but, uh, you know, going along with and supporting someone else. And I, I guess I can imagine that kind of race but then, you know, when we use words like tyranny and oppression, it's not just about service. It's actually about uh, making you do things which might you might not otherwise want to do. I mean, that's that's, that's right. the core of tyranny, isn't it? It's it's not that I willingly serve you. It's that I am forced to serve you, even though I might choose otherwise myself. Choose otherwise. That's right. Well, look, that's been a fabulous episode. We've explored um, so many different concepts. Um, and, um, uh, you know, like one of the things I'm loving about now being in season three of Deep Space Nine is that, that we, we're beginning to, to, to cast these threads of the meta story. And, and so um, six months ago, we talked about the episode Crossover. Um, and, um, and at the end of that episode, we said, oh, there's so much more to talk about. We'll come back and talk about it. And we have. Um, which is really great. Um, and, and so um, I, I thank you once again for uh, crossing over to the mirror universe of Deep Faith Nine from, uh, from the Delta Quadrant uh, of, uh, of Voyager. Um, and I, I look forward to um, uh, our, our next Voyager conversation. Well, thank you. Thank you, Will, for inviting me over to the uh, Deep Faith Nine universe, but I don't belong here and I'm not about to interfere with the things that go on here. <laughs> uh, you already have just by being here. Um, please remember that um, we do have our Patreon um, account going, Never Odd or Even Media, um, so you can find that on Patreon. Um, we would love to have your support. Um, there are a growing number of perks and uh, and benefits of actually supporting the podcast, uh, and there's even um, a, a, um, a line of merchandise now um, um, on the way. 
um, some T-shirts and key rings that we're actually working on with the Never Odd or Even logo. Uh, and some catchphrases from uh, some from from various people. So so uh, please go and check that out. Um, and um, as well as that, um, I, I'm I'm loving the contact I'm getting from people like uh, from Darren and Niall and Michelle um, and um, and Duncan. Um, and uh, please keep writing to us, uh, letting us know what you're thinking, agreeing, disagreeing, um, and um, and adding your bits and pieces to that. Um, and, um, and whilst they're great to receive personally, um, for those who have the ability to contact me directly, I'm sure that the rest of the community that's growing around um, Never Odd or even in Deep Faith Nine would love to be able to read and engage with your thoughts as well. So please go to the Never Odd or Even Facebook page uh, and leave your um, thoughts and comments there um, if you haven't done so already. Um, you can also leave comments directly on the podcasts and we'd love to get a review um, uh, on the podcast as well. So don't feel like just because you've reviewed us in one place that you shouldn't review us somewhere else. Um, ideally, we'd love you to get across all of the parallel universes of, um, of, uh, of social media and actually um, let us know um, how much you're enjoying or not enjoying um, the podcast. Um, until next time.